Hello again. Welcome to Carlos Explains America. Before today's episode, I wanted to repeat the disclaimers from last week. Like I said, everything that you're hearing is done by one person. I'm doing the research. I'm doing the outreach. I'm doing the writing, the recording, the editing, the interviews. I'm doing literally everything in here. And I'm working as hard as I can to bring you fresh content as often as possible. But keep in mind that I'm not always going to be able to keep it up on a weekly basis. The other thing that you should know is Carlos Explains America is an evolving project, which means that I'll be playing with formats, styles, and paces. No two episodes will be the same, and I'm doing this because I'm trying to find the best way to deliver information to you. But in order to know what's working and what's not, I need your feedback. So please leave a review, a comment, or hit me up on Twitter at CExplainsA. That's C as in Carlos, explains A as in America. And then you have another 229 characters to let me know what's up. Now that that's out of the way, let's move on to the episode. Today we'll be talking about immigration. For this chat, I'd like you to forget, even if just for one minute, anything that you've heard in the news about the border and immigrants. I promise we'll talk about most of these things, but the reason I need you to ignore all that you've heard is because this is a topic in which for decades the conversation has been more toxic than productive. Names are called, assumptions are made, and in the end both sides of the aisle wind up further from sitting closer to find solutions or even acknowledge where the issue really is. Instead, let me ask you, have you stopped to think, when did the southern border become an issue? Why did it escalate to the point it's at? Have we really done anything to help the situation at the border? What about the people? What about those that are crossing the border? What's going on at their homes that's making them flee? Do we have anything to do with what's happened there? There's a lot to this story of immigration, and because there's so much to unfold, I went to an absolute expert on this issue. That's how I came to find Dr. Douglas Massey. Dr. Massey is a professor of sociology at Princeton University. He specializes on immigration and he's authored a number of books, including Beyond Smoke and Mirrors, U.S. Immigration Policy in the Age of Globalization, and New Faces in New Places, The New Geography of American Immigration. Without further ado, here's our conversation. You can give me a little bit of a, a brief history of uh, Central American and Mexican migration to the United States. Well, Mexican migration in the United States has been going on for a long time. It began in the early 20th century, took off around 1907, when the United States signed the Gentlemen's Agreement with Japan, which uh, ended Japanese immigration to the United States and created labor shortages throughout the West. And in response, employers turned to recruiting Mexicans. And Mexicans began crossing the border in significant numbers, and you start picking them up in immigration statistics in around 1907. And then in 1914, World War I breaks out. It stops immigration from Europe to the United States, and that creates even more demand for Mexican workers, and the flows across the border accelerate. And then uh, when the U.S. enters in 1917 and has a military draft, that further exacerbates the labor shortages. And not only private employers are recruiting, but the government sets up a recruitment program. And after the war ended in 1918, uh, the government uh, stopped its uh, recruitment program, 
But in 1920, Congress passed the restrictive immigration quotas that sought to end European migration. And during the 1920s, Mexican immigration boomed and the Mexican population in the United States really took off. And that all came to an end in 1929 when uh, the depression hit and the government set up deportation policies that uh, between 1929 and 1935 deported around 450,000 Mexicans and cut the Mexican population in half. And that killed migration pretty much during the depression years. And then of course, when the US got into the second world war in 1942, the government returned to Mexico and negotiated a binational labor agreement called the Bracero Program, which uh, in the end and brought in around uh, 6 million uh, migrants over a 22-year period for temporary work in the agriculture and food processing sector of the United States. And at the height of the Bracero Program in the late 1950s, about 450,000 Mexican temporary workers were entering each year and permanent legal immigration to the United States from Mexico in late 1950 was about 50,000 people per year. So we had about half a million Mexicans coming into the United States every year in the late 1950s. Most of them were circulating back and forth, including those with permanent residence visas. Many of them were circulating back and forth. Real quick, when we say the majority, is there a number of around 300, 400,000? Of uh, the 400, uh, of about a half a million people, about um, 95% were circulating back and wow. forth. The vast majority the vast were majority, circulating yeah. back and forth. It sounds to me like there's been a change in the way that they're perceived in the country. If we're short of labor, then they're welcome because they're cheap labor. Or if there is a shortage of jobs or events like the Great Depression, then these are people that are taking jobs and are taking opportunities from locals. Has this been acknowledged in our country in the main narrative of immigration and uh, the southern border? It's not part of the popular narrative where immigrants come to the United States, the land of liberty, and, and uh, make their fortune, and we're in a country of immigration. Well, with respect to Mexico in particular, the United States has always had kind of a, an ambivalent uh, relationship uh, where they're, they welcome Mexicans as disposable labor that can be used when uh, they want workers and can be discarded when they're no longer needed. Uh, but have been historically reluctant to accept uh, Mexicans as, uh, as permanent immigrants and, and potential American citizens coming into the country. And you see that ambivalence come, come in and out of fashion. During times of economic boom, Mexicans kind of become invisible as migrant workers. And then when the economy goes south and it's a period of economic retrenchment, and suddenly they become unwelcome as immigrants. And this all came to play in a big way once the flows were really labeled as uh, uh, undocumented and illegal. This created a process of, of really demonization and racialization of Latin Americans in general and Mexicans in particular, dating from the late 1960s that has continued up to the present. So was the government concerned with, with this flow of, of, of labor from, from Mexico? They only got concerned when the depression hit and suddenly the Mexican workers were no longer welcome and were perceived as simultaneously taking jobs that Americans deserved and also going on welfare in a way that they didn't uh, merit. And then once the U.S. needed labor again in 1942, they were not concerned 
and the government uh, got in the business of recruiting labor. And that all came to an end in the 1960s uh, as a result of the civil rights movement. Uh, in the 1960s, of course, it was the height of the civil rights era. And in the end of 1964, Congress uh, let the Bracero program expire, basically unilaterally terminated it against Mexico's uh, opposition. And they did this because they came to see the Bracero program as an exploitive labor program, something like a sharecropping of blacks in the South. And in 1965, Congress then uh, changed U.S. immigration law to get rid of the restrictive national origins quotas and the bans on immigration from Asia and Africa and the Middle East. And they set up a new system that allocated visas on the basis of family reunification and labor market needs. And they put this in place, they phased it in, and in 1968, new quotas were put in place. And for the first time in American history, there was a numerical quota placed on the Western Hemisphere of 120,000 visas per year. And when Congress passed these um, laws in, the in 1965 and subsequent years, they weren't really thinking about what would happen to the flow of Mexican workers that had really gotten institutionalized in the 1950s and was running at a half a million people per year. So suddenly between the late 50s and the late 70s, Mexico goes from about half a million legal migrant workers coming into the United States every year down to a new system where there are no temporary work visas at all and uh, permanent resident visas are capped at 20,000 visas per year. And so conditions of labor supply and demand on both sides of the border hadn't really changed and over the 22 years of the Bracero program. And so after 1965, as it became more and more difficult to migrate legally, undocumented migration rose to replace it. And really not much had changed since the Bracero period. The same migrants going to the same sorts of employers in the same places in the United States. But now what was different was they were migrating in illegal status. And this created a, a political issue uh, and began what uh, Leo Chavez, an anthropologist at the University of California, Irvine, has called the Latino threat narrative. Because if the new migrants coming into the United States uh, were now illegal aliens, by definition, if they were illegal, they were criminals and, mm -hmm. and lawbreakers and mm -hmm. constituted a threat to the country. And so it's really a function of U.S. immigration policy, which created the illegal migration in the first place. So these quotas that came to effect that ended up affecting over 500,000 people, it seems like it's something that would raise a flag. Was was the government really concerned with how these quotas would affect the over 500,000 people that were that were going back and forth between Mexico and the United States? They really didn't think about it that much. They were much more concerned with righting the wrong of stigmatizing Southern and Eastern Europeans and banning Asians. And they really weren't thinking very much about what happened in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, they were kind of worried that if we didn't put some kind of limit on the Western Hemisphere, that uh, all the brown people would show up in the United States and want to be permanent residents and citizens. Uh, this was a fear of the Southern delegation. But at the same time, the Texas congressional delegation wanted to keep the flow of, of Mexican labor coming into the country, and they were mm -hmm. aided with by California in making this point. But nonetheless, the Bracero program was scrapped 
and new quotas were put on the Western Hemisphere. Uh, so uh, that ended the possibility for large-scale legal entry from Mexico or really from any other country in Latin America. Yeah. And it's not that this had never been a crisis before. The second big border crisis, the first one being the Great Depression, occurred in 1953 when the Korean War ended. There was a brief recession. It was the height of the McCarthy period. And uh, the poorest border came to be seen as the soft underbelly for communist penetration of the United States. And that coincided with the coming of a new Republican administration under Dwight Eisenhower. And he appointed the former commandant of the Marine Corps to be head of the Immigration and Naturalization Service. And he launched Operation Wetback, which uh, was the first full-scale um, militarization of the Mexico-U.S. border. It lasted about a year between 1953 and 1954, and it's the first time there were more than a million apprehensions along the Mexico-U.S. border. But what most people don't realize is that it wasn't really the militarization that brought an end to undocumented migration, which had been rising since uh, the late 40s into the early 1950s. What really ended illegal migration at that point was Congress's quiet expansion of the Bracero program mm. from about 100,000 or 150,000 visas to around 450,000 visas in the late 50s. And that really satisfied the demand. And uh, after that burst of deportations and apprehensions along the border, the border came to be seen as under control and uh, Mexican migrants kind of disappeared from public consciousness because now they were legal temporary workers going to farm fields and kind of out of the public view. Meaning providing a legal way for Mexican and for workers to come to the country really killed the, the, the need for them to cross the border illegally. Yeah, they don't want to cross illegally if they don't have to. Mm -hmm. And uh, once they made a pathway open for legal temporary work, that's the way Mexicans entered. And Undocumented migration virtually disappeared in the late 1950s and early 1960s until the uh, Bracero program was terminated. I think you touched on this a little bit earlier, but I, I wanted us to, uh, to go back to this. When the, the Bracero program was killed and the um, the quotas were, were installed, I, I can only think that the industries that relied on the labor, they would have a big interest in finding a way for, for their labor to come into the country. Were they heard in, in, in Congress and in, uh, by policymakers? Yes, they were. Texas and California delegations were fairly powerful, the growers in those states and the employers in those states. And when they restricted immigration and uh, in the Immigration and Nationality Act created penalties for facilitating undocumented migration, they included something called the Texas Proviso, named after the Texas delegation, which insisted it be inserted in legislation, which stated that it was unlawful to assist or harbor somebody migrating to the United States without authorization, comma, provided that employment did not constitute assistance or facilitation. And so basically, employers were off the hook. And this set the stage for mass uh, undocumented migration. Uh, employers got the workers that they were getting before, only now they were in undocumented status. And this had some advantages, being more flexible, and I suppose also migrants being somewhat more exploitable given their undocumented status, although the Bracero program was itself fairly exploitive. So yes, the growers and the employers that had relied on Mexican labor took care of themselves to give themselves this uh, exemption through the hmm. Texas Proviso. 
Interesting. Um, the way that I was thinking of this was that the employers would have an interest in maintaining legal immigration because they, they figured that they would they would keep their labor. What I'm understanding that you're saying is they had no interest in, in legal or illegal. And by making it under the table, they wouldn't have to uh, comply with a lot of labor rights. Well, that was part of it. Uh, I think basically they just wanted access to labor, and and if it was legal, fine. If but if if, if it wasn't going to be legal, and it looked like politically they couldn't keep it uh, keep the temporary worker program going in the civil rights era, then they made sure that they could get access, uh, as you say, under the table. And if that brought additional benefits of uh, more uh, flexible and exploited labor, that was fine. But really, what they wanted was access to the labor. All right, let's take a minute here to decompress all that we've been listening to, because there's still plenty to come. So far, we've heard that Mexicans weren't really coming across the border to stay in the country. They wanted to come and work, but eventually over 95% were going back home. They didn't try to stay in the country. It was just that the jobs happened to be here. The other thing that we've heard is that it was criminalized and it was chased down under really no grounds. When the United States started trying to regulate where people were coming from and how many people were coming, they didn't even really think what was going on at the southern border. It was really an afterthought, but it parallelly affected that border. The third thing that we've heard is that now these people were being criminalized for something that had never really been a crime. And the networks that they built with the employers made them criminals. If you wanted to go work in whatever, San Diego, no, it was illegal for you to do it. We've also heard that it was not a crime for the people that were reaping the benefits from cheap labor to do so. As you heard Dr. Massey say, employers were not liable for employing illegal immigrants. So to sum up, A, no, these people were not trying to stay in the country. B, no, the United States really didn't think what the policies they were putting in place were doing to people in the southern border. C, U.S. citizens were not being held accountable for promoting people to come into the country. And D, the United States wasn't even really thinking what further policies would do to these people. All right, now that we've decompressed this part, let's move on. Let's move on a little bit. Let me ask you, uh, prior to the militarization, crossing the border didn't necessarily mean permanent migration. What, what changed that? Well, starting in 1965, we enter what we historically call the undocumented era, where the flows from Mexico to the United States are no longer legal, but really dominated by undocumented migrants. And from 1965 to 1985, analyses that I've done using data that I've collected through the Mexican Migration Project with my colleague in Mexico, Jorge Durand, we estimated that uh, 85% of undocumented entries were offset by departures. And so it was still very much a circular flow. And the undocumented population, the resident population of the United States, grew very slowly from 1965 to 1985, going from around zero to uh, around 3 million people by 1985. So during this period, it was very much still a circular flow. And what changed that was in 1986, Congress passed the Immigration Reform and Control Act in the context of the recession of the early 1980s and a resurgence of Cold War rhetoric under President Reagan, 
and anti-communist fervor under Reagan, illegal migration once again became a political issue. And Congress passed the Immigration Reform and Control Act, which of course had a large legalization program, which actually provided legal status to a large number of former undocumented Mexican workers and a special legalization program for farm workers at the behest of growers in Texas and California. But at the same time, it began what uh, turned out to be a multi-decade process of border militarization, where border enforcement was steadily ramped up in a way that was really disconnected from the underlying traffic. It became a political symbol in and of itself, and the way that politicians showed concern about, oh, American workers or threats to America was by calling for more border enforcement was an easy way to demonstrate their concern. How does that relate to the people that were already here? The call them undocumented, call them illegal. Did that force them to stay? Did that install enough fear in them to cross the border back? Or what did that do to them? In 1986, when Congress passed the Immigration Reform and Control Act, the undocumented population actually dropped because of the legalization. So by 1988, there were only 2 million undocumented migrants living in the United States. But with the militarization of the border, what happened was crossing the border without documents became very risky and became very costly. And rather than going back and forth, migrants, who were at this point mostly male workers, started staying longer and longer. And as they stayed longer and longer, of course, they put down roots, they made contacts. Uh, if they had families in Mexico, they arranged for reunification to bring their spouses and children up from Mexico to join them because they didn't want to cross the border back and forth anymore because it was too risky and, and dangerous. And the out-of-pocket costs of border crossing got more and more steep as the, the flows were shifted from urban areas like Tijuana, San Diego, and Juarez, El Paso, out into the middle of the Sonoran Desert, where it was a lot more difficult and expensive and required a lot more effort to cross. So what happened was migrants minimized border crossing, not by staying in Mexico, but by not returning once they crossed the border and faced the gauntlet at the border, paid the cost, experienced the risks, then they just stayed in the United States. Mm -hmm. So the U.S. ended up spending several billion dollars per year on border enforcement. And the net effect was to increase the rate of undocumented population growth, which uh, through by increasing the net in-migration of Mexicans. And so the undocumented population grew from about 2 million in 1988 to, to a maximum of about 12 million by 2008. Hmm. Uh, and uh, that's why we have such a large undocumented population in the country today. What was the logic behind all these policies? Well, it really stemmed from a basic misunderstanding of the whole process of Mexico-U.S. migration or migration really from the Western Hemisphere. Americans have this myth that everybody wants to come here and live here permanently, whereas the average Mexican migrant from the 60s uh, through the uh, 90s really didn't want to settle here. The typical Mexican would begin migrating in the late teens or early 20s, uh, earn money to 
finance the construction of a house uh, and move out and get married and settled, and then maybe take a, a series of other trips to uh, you know, pay for some consumer goods in the house, buy land, set up a business, invest in education, but then would retire back to Mexico. And relatively few migrants became permanent settlers. More likely was they would become recurrent migrants who would really have a, a habit of working every year in the United States. I testified before Congress four or five times trying to explain this to various congressional committees. What reaction uh, do you get? When you, when and, you go and, talk and they, about this. they just don't seem to want to understand it. Further militarization of the border wouldn't really solve the problem. It's not like we don't have the troops to address what's being perceived as a, a flood of immigration. No, um, it's not the numbers at all. The number of people coming into the United States uh, has hovered around a net value of zero for more than a decade. And for Mexicans, it's negative. So more militarization, uh, more enforcement at the border can't uh, decrease the flow of Mexicans because it's already negative. And as we've seen from a lot of different data and analyses, militarization tends to suppress return migration, not in-migration. And so if it does anything, we'll probably increase the number of undocumented migrants in the States mm. and does nothing to really discourage people from coming here. So the last point that Dr. Massey touched on is a really important one. Militarization does not prevent immigration. Right now, we have thousands of troops across the border with Customs and Border Patrol and other services, and they are not really keeping people from coming. You can throw in another trillion dollars. You can throw in more troops. This is really not something that's going to change it. What that's actually going to do is keep people that are trying to go back to Mexico from going back. That's all it's going to do. Right now, most of the people that are crossing the border are trying to reunite with family members. It's a mother, it's a father, it's a husband, it's a kid. These are the people that are crossing the border trying to rejoin their family members. They are not a threat, and it's certainly not reason for us to throw as much money as is being talked about. When we're back, we're going to talk about another group. Central Americans from El Salvador, Nicaragua, Guatemala, and Honduras, whose migration to the United States is a lot more recent. But not only is it more recent, their coming to the United States has a lot to do with the actions from our government into their home countries. Stay on. All right, Dr. Massey, now let's talk about other countries in Central America. People from El Salvador, Honduras, Nicaragua, and El Salvador are also using the southern border to come to the United States. When we hear about these people on the normal conversation, we're talking about drug dealers, we're talking about MS-13, we're talking about criminals. What's missing from that conversation? Well, what's not in the conversation at all and in the public discussion is the fact that we bear a strong responsibility for the conditions that now prevail in what are typically called the frontline countries of the intervention period of the 1980s. So if you look at the data, before 1980, there was hardly any out-migration from Central America to the United States, very small numbers, uh, no undocumented migration and very small numbers of legal immigrants coming in from Central America. Then the U.S. launches the last great battle of the Cold War in Central America, 
uh, unleashes a, a contra army to depose the Sandinistas, trains and, and financially supports paramilitary squads in Guatemala, Salvador, and Honduras to repress peasant movements, all in the name of anti-communism. Massive waves of violence spread throughout those countries, uh, displacing people from their lands, and they seek a, a refuge by heading northward towards the United States. And the violence and the disorder that was caused by the military and political intervention destabilized the economy. And between 1980 and 1990, economic growth not only restricted, it fell in absolute terms. And so the wage gap between the frontline countries and the United States, as well as between the frontline countries and the other countries in Central America, dramatically increased. And this is all pretty much a direct result of what we did in Central America in the 1980s. And if we were honest about what was going on and what happened and what is going on now, we would realize that it's not a crisis of immigration at the border. It's a humanitarian crisis mm -hmm. with fairly reasonable numbers, small numbers of people in the, in the general schemes of things, families and children, women trying to escape horrendous conditions that we Americans are in large part responsible for in the first place. So to recap, we have misconceptions of what type of people are coming into the country. We have a misconception of why they're leaving their home countries. We have a misconception as to what the Border Patrol really achieves in the border and the militarizing and closing off the border or securing the border really achieves. We have a misconception of what these people do. And I wouldn't even call it a misconception. We ignore the role that we played with all the interventionist moves in Central America. Let me ask you, what else are we missing? Well, especially Mara Salvatrucha. Mara Salvatrucha is another American creation. Commonly known as MS-13, right? That's Mara Salvatrucha. Mara Salvatrucha 13 mm -hmm. is another product of, of the Central American in intervention. When we intervened and we ended up displacing large numbers of people from the four countries, Nicaraguans who were fleeing were given red carpet to a green card uh, because they were fleeing a left-wing Sandinista government that we saw as communist and they were our enemies in the Cold War. And they entered without documents or overstayed visas, but they were allowed to legalize. But we could not politically accept Salvadorans, Hondurans, and Guatemalans as refugees or asylum seekers because they couldn't possibly be refugees because they were fleeing right-wing governments that were allied with the U.S. in the prosecution of the Cold War. And so they all entered in undocumented status and languished there. Some of them at various points were given temporary protected status, which was never permanent and has now been rescinded by President Trump. And so when late teenage males from Salvador came into the United States, they didn't have the networks. They were really at odd ends. The, the younger ones could enter school and, and do okay in school, but the older ones basically were too old to start in school. And so they ended up hanging out in the streets in Los Angeles. And the Mara Salvatrucha really formed in the Pico Union neighborhood of Los Angeles in the 1980s as a means of creating social solidarity among young males who couldn't find jobs, who were adrift, And that, that's the beginning of Mara Salvatrucha. And then it was exported back to Salvador hmm. uh, 
uh, when gang members started getting deported. And then they formed cells in, in El Salvador and started using the same gang uh, methods and network formation that they developed in the United States in Salvador. And then the gang started spreading through Salvador. All right. So I'd like to talk a little bit about how the southern border and immigration has played out in the U.S. politics. By the 1980s, border enforcement had become a political symbol in and of itself. Mm -hmm. And so if Americans were worried and restless about their jobs or if they were afraid of terror or they're afraid of any threat coming into the United States, an easy way for politicians to act like they care was to throw money at border enforcement. And it seemed fairly costless to them at the time. And it was bipartisan. So the border buildup uh, began under President Reagan, continued under Bush one, uh, then accelerated under Clinton. It was under Clinton that they launched Operation Blockade and Operation Gatekeeper and really started walling off huge sections of the border. And it continued under Bush two. And then when Obama came into office, he expanded the border, border patrol and, and ramped, dramatically ramped up deportations. Uh, I think Obama's calculus was, well, people are reasonable, Republicans are reasonable, I'll uh, show them that I can be tough on immigration and showing them that I'm, I'm going halfway by cracking down on the border and by deporting more people. Of course, they'll want to compromise with me, which was a pretty stupid uh, strategy, in my opinion, because Republicans made it very clear from the very first days of his presidency that they were going to do everything possible not to pass anything he proposed and to make his presidency a failure. And so this, this gambit was really very costly for him and the Democrats in particular, because he became the deporter in chief and uh, deported more uh, people than ever in the history of the United States. And I think this really hurt the Democrats' chances in the 2016 elections that Latinos had come out and voted for Obama twice and really were the margin of victory in key states. Mm. And yet he returned the favor not by uh, doing immigration reform, which he had promised, but by ramping up deportations to record levels. And it made it more difficult for Hillary Clinton to remobilize the coalition that had twice elected him. Mm. So that pretty much answers my next question, which was going to be if, if the government had ever acknowledged that this was a bit counterproductive. Yeah, well, uh, Obama had promised immigration reform and he put it on the back burner while he did uh, health insurance. Mm -hmm. And then by the time his, the second two years of his term came in, the Republicans had controlled Congress and he really couldn't get anything done. But the damage had already been done politically with Latino populations. They gave him the benefit of the doubt in 2012, and he did DACA, which was all he could do, the uh, deferred action for uh, childhood arrivals. But it became clear that he really had failed to live up to his campaign promises to the Latino population. What would a more productive conversation on immigration at the southern border look like? Well, um, I think there are two things that we need to do for a more reasonable, rational, and humane immigration policy. The first thing is to stop the deportations and create a pathway to legal status for the 11 million people who are out of status in the United States, with first priority given to the so-called dreamers or DACA kids. Uh, I know of no ethical, moral system anywhere in the world that says it's okay to punish children for decisions taken by their parents. 
and any attempt to deport these people is cruel and inhumane and completely unjustifiable in any ethical system that I've ever heard of. And if we legalize these 11 million people, then that solves a, a big problem. And then the second thing is to recognize that what we have uh, at this point is not a crisis of mass migration of workers coming into the country, but a humanitarian crisis of families, of women and children escaping conditions that prevail in Central America for which we as Americans are in large part responsible and we have to live up to our responsibilities. Unfortunately, the United States has a bad habit of going around intervening in places, breaking things and then walking away and pretending like they have nothing to do with the consequences. You see this in the Middle East. The last time we honored our moral responsibilities was in the aftermath of our disaster in Vietnam when we had hundreds of thousands of boat people uh, in the 1970s, the United States lived up to its responsibilities and said, okay, we screwed up. There are refugees from Southeast Asia, and we're going to take them in. And we took them in, hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, and we did that, and America got along fine. There was no permanent damage. They're now integrated into American society, and second and third generation of these people, are uh, they're doing fine. And uh, the same could be said uh, for Central Americans today. And the numbers in Central America just aren't that big. The countries are small. It took Mexico 50 years for 10% of Mexico to end up living in the United States. Uh, and Mexico's 125 million people. Even if you took 50 years to take 10% of, get 10% of Central America in the United States, this would be a small number. We could deal with these problems very easily were it not for the kind of racist rhetoric, the nationalist sentiment, the nativism that is prevailing uh, in our government today. And it, the sad thing is uh, a majority of Americans, according to all polls, favor a pathway to legalization and a more reasonable immigration and border policy. But because of the peculiarities of the American constitutional system, we have a, a, a non-popularly elected government that is pursuing a policy that most Americans oppose. Are you optimistic that we'll be able to solve all of the issues in our immigration system? And are you optimistic that we'll be able to come to terms with our responsibility and, and the, the part that we've played in this whole immigration crisis? In the long run, yes, I'm optimistic because the demography of the United States is changing dramatically and uh, anti-immigrant nativist policies are not going to be very successful in the future. Um, if you look at who's born in the United States today, 25% of births are to Latinos, about uh, 12 or 13% are to people of African origin, uh, around 8% are Asians, and a growing share come from parents who are completely mixed up. And 18 years from now, that's gonna be the new cohort of voters in the United States. I'd like to thank Dr. Massey for his time. The issue of immigration is a very serious one that has consequences on millions of people in our country and at the border. Don't buy into the myth that these people are criminals and that our country would be better off without them. Don't buy into the spiel that we need to deport them and send them back to their home countries. For a lot of these people, America is their home country. Don't buy the myth that it's crime and homemade issues in Mexico and other countries 
the reason why we're suffering from this. We need to acknowledge our responsibility and we need to act accordingly and responsibly. I don't mean to throw shade at any one party. As Dr. Massey explained, Democrats historically have also had a lot of responsibility and they have failed to address issues that they promised that they would because they prioritize in addressing other issues and ignore the issue of immigration. In the same way Republicans keep trying to convince us that the southern border is a risk to the country and a risk of homeland security and we need to throw more money into Customs and Border Protection and other agencies. I hope that the conversation that we just listened to helps you set the record straight. Thank you for listening.